All right. Good morning, everybody. I was reminded after the last service, Cheryl reminded me to please introduce myself because I know not everybody knows me. Probably a lot of you do at this point. I usually am playing the drums. I uh, lead the Wednesday night young adult ministry here, Bible study, whatever you want to call it. So I'm Josh, and I'm happy to be here teaching. I was here last week. Who was here last week uh, or watched Romans 6 online? Okay. All right. A good portion of people. All right. I'm glad for that because I'm going to say again something that I said last week. Romans, it is very important when we're reading this book to read all of it. That's true for all of the epistles. That's true for any portion of Scripture. We should be reading the entire thing so we understand it all in context. But especially so in Romans. I said last week, I gave a couple examples of different misinterpretations that you'll come away with if you don't read all of it at once. If you only read chapter 5, you might get a wrong idea. If you only read chapter 6 and nothing else, you might get a wrong idea. Same is true for chapter 7. So if you, if you weren't here last week to hear it, or if you didn't watch it online, and if you, hadn't read, if you haven't read it, please, after today, you've got to read chapter 6 in order to understand chapter 7. You're going to have a misunderstanding after this. So I'm really glad that a lot of us were here last week to hear this. So I'm going to do a review. I've done this every time. For the reason that I just gave you, I want to make sure we understand where we've come from so far. So I'm going to do a really, really brief paraphrase summary of what the past six chapters have been. So, so far, we saw in chapter 1, sinners are guilty. There's a list at the end of chapter 1 of sins, of behaviors that people were engaging in. There were some sins that were more common among the Romans than among the Jews. There were things that really just weren't done among the Jews because of their culture. The Jews had their own set of sins that were pretty common among them, though. Sinners are guilty. Chapter 2 said, you are guilty while you're judging others. And this was, could have been addressed to anybody who was judging someone else, but it was probably addressed in large part to the Jewish readers of the book who are looking at the Gentiles or who are looking at these unsaved Romans and accusing them of sin, condemning them in their hearts. Paul says to them, you're guilty of the same exact things while you're judging these guys. You want to judge people for one particular set of sexual sins? You're committing different sexual sins either in, in, in person, in body, or in your mind, and it's the same thing. You're just as bad. And then in case we didn't get it, chapter 3, he tells us everyone is guilty. If you're a person, you're guilty. And then chapter 4, he finally starts to round the corner. So he spent this first portion of it just accusing, accusing, accusing. But that's the beginning part of the gospel is a recognition that we need Jesus, isn't it? So he spends the first part talking about who is guilty, who needs Jesus. He takes three chapters to drive home the point that it's everybody. Everybody needs Jesus. Everybody is guilty. Everybody needs Jesus. And he starts to round the corner. And in chapter 4, he tells us how we can be justified. We can only be justified by faith. And he also tells us, he, makes, he takes a special care to point this out in multiple chapters, especially in 4 and 5. He's telling us both Jews and Gentiles can be justified. He's got a message for both of them. To the Gentiles, he says, you need to recognize that this is a privilege for you to be invited into the family of God, for you to be invited into this group of God's chosen people. This is a privilege for you, but this is for you. And then to the Jews, he's saying, you need to understand that you do have a benefit of having been the chosen people of God. You got to receive the law and the prophets. You got to receive everything that was pointing towards Jesus. 
But now that Jesus has come, don't you dare exclude the Gentiles. So he's bringing them onto this level playing field where for the Jews and for the Gentiles, Jesus and believing in him through faith, being justified, is the only way to salvation, and it's for everyone. Chapter 5 gives us the result of that. What's our relationship with God? Once we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with him. We were at odds with him, and now we're completely at peace with him. Chapter 6, it was a really long, really long one, but basically we are free from sin. He's telling us more of the results. When you've been justified, when you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are freed from sin. He talked about the difference between being a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness. And he used the analogy of slavery because he knew people at that time would understand it. People would understand what it meant because a lot of people that he was writing to probably did have a master that they served and they were bound to that one master. They don't serve a different master. So he uses this analogy to teach us. You were a slave of sin, but the moment you accepted Christ Jesus, that relationship was cut off. You are now a slave of righteousness. So that's where we've been so far. He's going to go a little further here. He's going to give us a little bit more detail on a couple of the things that we talked about last week. He's going to further explain the transformation that occurs within us. And he's going to expand on his description of the law. Because remember, he had Jewish readers here, and he's talking a lot about the law and how the law has, in many senses, been done away with. But he wants to address any concerns that that might bring up in the Jewish readers. Do I have, can I get a volunteer to read Romans 7? All right, we got one. Thank you. Release from the law bound to Christ. Do I not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by the law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if, the, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law, through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who has raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God, for good, for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law, were at, oops, were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All right, thanks. Actually, I'll have you stop there. I actually want to split this into sections. So we'll take those first six verses and I'll, I'll teach on those for a minute and then we'll move to the next couple. Thank you for reading that. All right. So we're going to look at the very first verse is going to set the stage for our interpretation of this entire chapter of Romans. This first verse is critical in our understanding. And that will become more clear as we get towards the end of the chapter. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, listen to this phrase, for I am speaking to those who know the law. 
So way back at the beginning of Romans, when we were learning about who is the audience, who is Paul, we're learning about some of the background information. We learned that Paul wrote this to both Jewish and Gentile believers, but there were also a lot of unbelievers who were going to read this. There were Jews who were going to read this letter who did not yet follow Christ. So this, this letter had a really wide audience. Excuse me. And what he's telling us here is that this portion of the letter will make the most sense to people who know the law. What that means for us as Christians in 2022 is that we have to read this from the perspective of the original audience because this wasn't written to a bunch of Christians in Uncasville in 2022. This was written to Jewish and Gentile believers and Jewish uh, non-believers. They didn't believe in Christ. This was written to people at a very different time. This was written to people nearly 2,000 years ago who had a different understanding than we do. So for us to read this from our own perspective is going to lend itself to a misinterpretation. So remember this. I am speaking to those who know the law. That's very important for our understanding of this chapter. The next thing he does is he's going to use, he wants to explain a little bit further the legal relationship between us and sin and us and Jesus Christ. So he's going to use this analogy of marriage. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. In general, this is something that we can understand too. This doesn't necessarily require some, some great cultural detective work to understand. We know as believers, and I think in generally even the world knows that ideally, a marriage doesn't end till death. Now, we've seen that that's not always the case, but the Jewish people especially understood that marriage, marriage was not really meant to end except by death. And so this is something that Paul can use as an analogy to describe what is happening to someone's first relationship to sin. We can't be freed from sin's mastery, as was referred to in chapter 6, unless there's a death in that relationship. But when there's a death in the relationship between us and sin, now we can be freed to leave that first relationship with sin because sin is dead through Christ and we can be married to Christ. We can become the bride of Christ. So he's using, he's using this analogy of marriage to point out what happens in our relationship. You're only freed for a new marriage if there was a death in the old marriage. And that's something that the Jewish people would have understood as they read this. So in the next couple verses, 5 and 6, Paul des describes the consequences of this legal action. What did this mean for our lives? When we were once bound to sin, we had our first relationship, and our first relationship was sin. And we moved over into this new relationship with Christ because there was a death of sin in the old relationship. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written law. So when we were legally bound to sin, he tells us, we bore fruit to death, verse 5. When we were in a relationship with sin, what naturally flowed out of us was sinful actions that led to death. And this is something that if we, if we read or, or were here last week for chapter 6, that we should be able to understand from what he said in the previous chapter. Our natural 
the natural result of my life before Christ was sin. It's only by dying to that relationship that I can enter a new relationship that will enable me to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And I used an example last week to try to describe what happens the moment that we accept Christ as our salvation and our sins are washed, not only are we forgiven and we get a ticket to heaven, I said, imagine that there are two paths. Both of these paths kind of head forwards generally. But one of them goes this way, and this is the path of the flesh. And this path is the only path that's available to me when I don't know Jesus. The path of the Spirit exists, but there's a big roadblock on it. And that roadblock is sin. That roadblock is my sinful nature that has not yet been redeemed. So I have this path of the flesh, and until I meet Jesus, this is the path that I'm taking. And I said, the moment we get saved, the roadblock to this path of the Spirit is removed. And now, should I so choose, I have the option to walk in the Spirit of God, and I can walk in this direction, and I can walk in the will of God. I'm not going to go too much further into that. If you want to hear more about that, you can go to uh, watch any of Calvary's old sermons on YouTube. The, the YouTube channel name is the same as the website name, Calvary Chapel 316. And you could hear more of that analogy. But I'll leave it at that for now. So he's reviewing again for us what happened when we accepted Jesus Christ. Our relationship with sin was cut off, and we now have an ability to walk with the Spirit because we've been transformed. So now, we've noticed a lot. This is another thing I want to notice for the sake of interpreting the rest of this chapter. Paul asks a lot of rhetorical questions, doesn't he? How many times has he said, does that mean this? Absolutely not. He asks it again here. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Why is he asking this rhetorical question? Because remember, we said at the beginning, Paul is talking to, he said, I'm talking to, believer, I'm talking to people right now who know the law. What he's just done kind of sounds like a, a criticism of the law. But he wants to point out that is not what I'm saying. And he's going to clarify here. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he's telling us the same thing that he told us in chapter 5 and chapter 6. The law came so that we might have an awareness of sin. And now he's going further. He said, We've had, we have our awareness of sin now. But sin, uh, verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So when the law entered, all of these people, all of the human beings that existed were born into the line of Adam. We were born into the line of Adam, and we learned in chapter 5, which John Powell taught on here, we learned from chapter 5 that if, you were, if you're born into the line of Adam, which is everybody, you are born into a sinful nature. But until the law came, that spirit of sin that was within every person, it didn't have much to grasp onto. But as soon as the law came, this sinful, rebellious nature within us dialed it up like a hundred times because it finally sees, oh, there's the standard. I'm going to shoot for down here. That's what sin wants to do within each of us. So the sin saw the standard, and it decided to violate it. So sin seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment. 
and produced in me every kind of coveting. He uses an example of coveting here. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I'm going to come back to that in a second because we're going to see that Paul is actually stepping into a pretty interesting style of writing here. And if we don't understand the style of writing that he's using, we're going to misinterpret the next few verses. But I'm going to come back to that in a second. So put a pin in that. I want to finish talking about his defense of the law here really quick. So if we look down to verse 12 and 13, he says, so by no means am I calling the law wrong. The law is not sinful. The law was good. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used, being sin, sin used what is good. Sin used the law to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And I looked up that last phrase just out of curiosity, utterly sinful. It just means sin, is, sin was brought to its fulfillment. Sin was fully recognized for what it is when the law came and sin violated every part of the law. So sin is recognized and revealed through the law. And this is the mechanism by which the law was used by sin to bring us death. The law was introduced and the law contains within it a penalty for sin. So sin sees the law, says, I'm going to violate that. That sinful nature was within all of us. So we violate the law, are judged guilty by the law, and now are deserving of death. But it wasn't the law that killed us. It was sin within us that took advantage of the law to bring us death. So Paul wants to make a defense here. The law was good. It was sin that is bringing about death. He wants to clarify this for his Jewish readers because this could have been very concerning to them to the point that maybe he even loses credibility if he doesn't clarify this. So Paul clarifies. Now, I want to make a note. Uh, actually, I'm going to go back to verse 9. So in verse 9, Paul makes this statement that's kind of interesting, and it's pretty easy to read over if we're not paying attention. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Was Paul alive before the law was introduced? Paul was not alive before the law was introduced. The law was introduced well before Paul. So how could he say, I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died? This is what I want to introduce here. A common rhetorical tool that was used by ancient philosophers was called diatribe style. And this is a big word, and this might get a little bit boring for half a second, but bear with me, because if we don't understand this, we're going to misinterpret the second half of Romans 7, I guarantee you. Paul's writing style, I, I told us, I, I said we need to uh, pay attention to the fact, we've seen a lot of rhetorical questions, haven't we? We've seen that. We've seen him ask a lot of times, does that mean this? Am I saying this? Absolutely not. We saw that in chapter 5, we saw it multiple times in chapter 6, we've seen it already in chapter 7. Diatribe style, this style of philosophical teaching that Paul is writing in, is generally characterized by rhetorical questions and imaginary conversational participants. These imaginary conversational participants are a way that a teacher can speak as someone else 
and try to build a relatable perspective that the reader will understand. I'm going to go to the second word, and hopefully that'll make more sense. I had to write down how to pronounce it. The second word, prosopopoeia. Prosopopoeia is how you say that. Don't ask me to say it when I don't have my paper. I'm not going to try. Prosopopoeia is an imaginary or absent person being represented as speaking or acting. This is similar to personification. I used this example in the last service. Sometimes we might say, my car was begging for fuel. Your car wasn't begging for fuel. Your car was not saying a word. Your car didn't say anything. But we all know what that means. Your car needs fuel, and so we personify something. It's a, a technique of speaking that we're all familiar with, to put words into the mouth of something or someone that can't speak because they either aren't there or they're imaginary or they're a car and they can't speak. This is a tool that Paul is using here. And why do we know that? Why do we know that Paul couldn't possibly be speaking as just me, just me, Paul? Because he said something that doesn't actually make any sense if it's just Paul. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Paul wasn't alive before the law. What Paul is doing here is using himself. He's speaking from the perspective as a, as a stand-in for humankind. So I, once I, I'm going to replace the I in this verse with humanity. Once humanity was alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin sprang to life and humanity died. That sounds a lot like chapter 5, doesn't it? That sounds a lot like everything that we learned from chapter 5. When Paul taught us that through Adam, all of humanity was condemned to death. That's exactly what this verse sounds like when we replace this and understand, oh, okay, Paul is speaking from the perspective of this imaginary speaker. And I'm going to introduce to us, I'm going to try to give this a name so that we can understand it a little bit better. So this was his writing style. And I called this character the slave of sin. He introduces us to the character that he's speaking as. So I just talked about the writing style that Paul uses. Now I want to bring back the point that we made in the very first verse. And I said this is going to be important for the second half of this chapter. Remember here, Paul is talking to a group of people. He said in verse 1, I am speaking to those who know the law. He is speaking to people who understand the law of God. He is speaking to the Jewish people who have been serving God or attempting to serve God in the flesh without the transformation of Jesus Christ for centuries. And we know how that's been going for them. They've been exiled. They've been rejecting God regularly. And they're doing their best. It's not that they at all times are denying God's goodness. They understand the goodness of God. But they have not yet been transformed because Jesus Christ had not yet come on the scene to save them. So this is the character that Paul is speaking as. I said, meet the slave of sin. Verse 14 says, we know that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now, just at first glance, we should already be able to see that this is a little bit contradictory to chapter 6. Paul just spent all of chapter 6 talking about how we are no longer slaves of sin. Sin is no longer your master. I'm going to read a couple of verses from chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 11 said, 
In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14 said, Sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Verses 17 and 18 said, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And now we come back to chapter 7 and he says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So right off the bat, we should be able to see just by understanding the context of chapter 6, he is speaking as a character here. He is speaking from the perspective of somebody who still is a slave to sin, but that can't be the Christians because he just spent all of chapter 6 telling us that once you've accepted Christ, your position before God has completely changed because Jesus was very good at what he did. He was excellent at what he did. So we see that he is, he is continuing in the pattern that he established in verse 9, where he sets up this character. He's using this literary tool to make a point here, and we must read it as the original audience would have, or we will get the wrong perspective. Because this is a room full of Christians in 2022. Probably in the last service, I know there was at least one guy we were talking afterwards who was ethnically Jewish. There might be some people here who are ethnically Jewish who might understand this a little bit better than others of us, depending on how you were raised. But this is not a Jewish community. This is a Christian community. This letter was not written primarily to a Christian community. And especially this chapter, he said this was not written to a Christian community. He said that in verse 1. He said this was written to those who know the law. So we must read it as those who know the law. This character that he is speaking as now, I called it the slave of sin. He introduced these two characters to us in the last chapter. There is a slave of sin, and then Jesus comes, and that slave of sin can become a slave of righteousness. And he's going to speak now in angst as the slave of sin. The Jewish person who knows the law of God understands that God is good. The law is good. This is the way that I can be with God is to follow the law but I just can't do it. So what would someone like that say? These next few sentences are all going to be things that would be incredibly relatable to a Jewish person who knows that the law of God is very good, but has not been transformed by Jesus Christ and cannot do what they want to do. They see the goodness of the law of God and they cannot attain it because they're still an unredeemed person. The sacrifices in Jewish law did nothing to change a person from the inside. The sacrifices of the Jewish law cleansed them of sin, but they had to be offered yearly. So these people are desperate for change, and they see the goodness of God and the goodness of the law of God, and they can't consistently follow it. They can't do it. So Paul is painting this character. Let's hear what this character has to say. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And we can already see, doesn't this make a lot of sense that this would have been very relatable to the Jewish audience? This is exactly the position that they're in. This wasn't written to Christians. This was written to Jewish people. This was written to people who understood the law, knew the law of God, wanted to follow it, and had no ability to do so. As it is, Verse 17, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. 
for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Again, we can see that this would have been relatable to them. Because if they didn't have the desire to do what is good, they wouldn't be going and making sacrifices every year. These people were going and making sacrifices every year because they wanted to be right with God. They wanted to do what is good. They agreed that the law was good, and they couldn't uphold it. I cannot carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. This character that Paul is expressing here is every Jewish reader who had not yet accepted Christ. This is every Jewish reader who knew the history of the law, knew the history of the Israelites, and saw the inability to actually keep the law of God. This was written to a people who were in desperate need of a Savior. And right now, he's going to go on to give them the answer. A couple more sentences here, and then he's giving the answer. Verse 21, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Because we remember Were the Jewish people freed from being in this sinful line of Adam by the Jewish law? They weren't. They weren't freed from the line of Adam. They were not yet cleansed by the blood of Jesus, transformed from the inside out as we saw in chapter 6. They were not yet cleansed. So within them was still a sinful nature. They were the exact same sinful person that Adam was. They delight in God's law, but they see the work of sin, the law of sin at work within them. And so Paul makes this complaint, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? This is the question that the Jewish people have been asking for centuries. And we could see this longing in David. If if we read some of the Psalms, we can see the longing that David had to be set free. I said this last night. We can see that David was called a man after God's own heart. That is a high honor, to be called a man after God's own heart. But anybody who's familiar with the life of David knows that David was not a sinless man. And if we look at what was arguably his, his, greatest, his greatest stumble was when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband. This didn't happen over the course of a couple sentences. It might in our Bible. This happened over the course of months. He was not immediately repentant. But we see him fall on his knees and cry out to God after this. So even David is a perfect example of this type of person that Paul might have been talking about. Paul could have been talking to David because David knew the law of God. David knew God well. David probably knew God better than most of the people in the Old Testament. There were very few who had the privilege of personally knowing God like David did. But even David... Even the man after God's own heart is this slave of sin. This character that Paul is talking about, this slave of sin, this one who knows the law, who desires to do it and just can't do it. 
what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Here's the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he sums up everything that he's just said in this little address as the slave of sin. He sums it up right here. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So everything that he's just done up to this point is point out that everybody's sinners. He's pointed out to the Jews that even they are sinners. He's pointed out that they need Jesus Christ. And now he's gone so far as to make a very relatable complaint for them. He takes all of the words that they are probably saying right now, puts them into one complaint, and says, I understand the position that you're in. You ready for the answer? It's Jesus Christ. The reason that this is so important, that we understand what perspective this is written from and who it was written to, is that we run into a big problem if we read this as written by a Christian who has been saved. And if you were here last week, you probably already see where I'm going with this. I said last week that there were two extremes that we could come to by reading chapter 6. And I used the illustration of a pendulum. I don't know if Glenn is here, but Glenn gave me this idea to use the illustration of a pendulum. Because we as people, we have a huge capacity to understand things at extremes. And I realize, oh no, I understood this the wrong way. And instead of swinging back to a moderate point, very, very calmly and carefully, I just fly all the way this direction and come to an opposite misunderstanding. So I said, on this extreme, on this side of the pendulum, is the person who sees the work that Jesus did in them, but can't stop thinking about their own works and how disgusting they are and how condemned they are. So they understand, Jesus saved me but I'm still really gross. I can't stop. I wake up and I think about how horrible I am. And then on this extreme, we swing from that over to here where I wake up and I'm like, wow, I'm pretty awesome. I am like really good. Have you seen me lately? Look at me. Look at my works. Both of these extremes, I said, are very self-centered. And where we're supposed to be is in the middle, ignoring my works altogether because the Bible says, I believe it's uh, Psalm 103, says, our transgressions were removed from us as far as the east is from the west. A conceptually infinite distance is how far God removed my sin from me. So I ought to be looking at God and thanking him, not saying, look how good my works are, or look how terrible my works still are. Stop being self-centered. Both of those extremes are self-centered. For you to wake up in the morning and go, my works are bad, means that for that moment at least, you are not looking at Christ. You are looking at yourself but he washed you. So the reason that I want us to understand this properly is that if you read this as from a Christian who is saved, you are misunderstanding the point that Paul made and you will forget chapter 6. You will forget that you are dead to sin if you read this as having been written from a Christian perspective. Someone who is saved. He just spent the entirety of chapter 6 telling us that we're dead to sin. And then we'll read this in such a way that we deny chapter 6. Now, I don't want to leave it there. Because I asked this question last week. I'm going to ask it again. By show of hands, who has sinned at least one time since you became a believer? Okay, cool. <laughs> one time a minute. Whoa. So I don't want to deny here that we see, we can see by common sense, we can understand that a struggle exists here, doesn't it? A struggle exists here. However, do not let the fact that we can see 
in our own lives that a struggle exists cause you to deny everything that we learned from Paul in chapter 6. When God looks at you, does he see a sinner? He does not. He does not because the blood of Jesus was excellent at what he sent it to do. So we had better not wake up. All right, I'm going to use this analogy. Jesus paid in blood to remove from us this label that said sinner. He crumpled it up, he washed it in blood, and he threw it away. What a lot of us like to do is go back, pick up that crumpled paper, and say, don't worry, God, this is humble. This is what I'm doing is very humble. And I uncrinkle it, and I paste it back onto myself. And I say, Jesus, you cleansed me, but I'm still a sinner. What was his blood for then? Let's get our understanding right. Let's get our attitude right. And understanding this and having the proper attitude doesn't mean that we have to deny the struggle. I would never deny the struggle. I grew up a Christian. My mom's right here. They raised us in church. They raised us knowing God. And I spent years, years stuck in sin. I spent years. And I know I'm not the only one. And I know that there's people here who are stuck in it right now. And I would never go so far as to say, your free will to sin was removed from you at salvation. That's obviously not the case. But I want to take the right portions of Scripture to address that and not pretend that Romans 7 is supposed to paint a war within us. It doesn't. Romans 7 paints the war that the Jewish readers had. They knew the law of God and they could not keep it because they didn't know Christ. And Paul introduces Christ as the answer. And now we can look to different writings from Paul. We can look to different parts of Scripture. We could even look to different parts of Romans for an answer to this war within us. And that's what I'm going to end on is a, a quick address of this war within us. But before we address the war within us, we have got to understand ourselves in the same way that God does. How dare we tell God that he was wrong to call me clean? He did a very good job cleaning you. You cannot do something that is bad enough that the blood of Jesus couldn't clean you. And if you believe that you can you're going to keep sinning for the rest of your life. You are not going to ever get free from something. If you wake up, deny that Jesus ever changed you, and still pretend that you're able to follow him wholeheartedly that way. I used the analogy last week as well of a recovering addict. I talked to John Powell about this, who's the pastor of Recovery Church on Sunday nights over in New London, and they have a recovery ministry for um, people with alcohol addiction, drug addiction, sexual addiction, any other kind of addiction. They have a ministry for these, uh, anybody that finds themselves struggling with this kind of thing. And I asked him, John, what would you say to somebody who came to you, a drug addict who came to you and said, hey, pastor, I would really like to be free. I would really like to stop doing drugs, but I just want to let you know, in humility, probably going to get high every single day. What are that person's chances of being free? There's no chance. There's no chance. There's no chance that when we set our mind on our own works and set our mind on our own ability to continue committing sin that we will ever be free from sin. There's no chance. But when we shift our perspective and look at Jesus Christ and receive the grace that he gave us and attribute to him all of the power that he actually has to fully cleanse me, that's the first step in walking in this path of the Spirit. So there is a struggle. I would never deny that there's a struggle. And one of the verses that I want to bring up on this, and I'll share a couple other thoughts on this struggle, and then we're going to take uh, communion together.
We referenced part of Galatians 5 last week, a later portion. So I'm jumping back now to Galatians 5, verse 13. Even Paul acknowledges this. Nothing that Paul has said in chapter uh, Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, nothing that Paul has said should make us think that we're perfect. We've never sinned again ever since we got saved. Nothing that he has said there should make us think that. And Paul himself acknowledges that. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. He acknowledges here that it's possible for us to still choose sin. He acknowledges, I have a body of flesh that has carnal desires. I have a body of flesh that has, that has sexual desires and that has desires for food and that has desires for all kinds of carnal pleasures that are just to serve my own well-being at the expense of other people, at the expense of the goodness of God. He acknowledges that there is a struggle that exists here. And it would be a whole other message for, for us to get into a, a, a more exhaustive teaching on how do we practically walk in freedom? How do, we, how do we start to step out of a pattern, a habit of sin? So I want to just give us two things. One of them I already said. One of them is we need to view ourselves the same way that God does. If God called you clean, call yourself clean. If God called you clean, thank Him for your cleanliness. If God called you clean, thank Him for the sacrifice that he made, and that's what we're going to do when we take communion, is we're going to remember the sacrifice that he made to clean us. Thank him for that. Thank him that when he looks at you, he did a good enough job to completely clean you. Thank him for that. Get your mind off of yourself. For one second, get your mind onto Christ, and you will understand this revelation of the goodness of God and how powerful he is. God is amazing, and he did a very good work in you. That should be so encouraging to us. So let's look at ourselves the way that God does. That's the first step. The second step, there, there, there could be a million steps here, and I'm going to give us one more, and I don't have a slide for it because I just was thinking of this this morning, but I believe it's First John that says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. So if step one is to see myself positionally as clean before God, align myself with God, step two is come to somebody. Come to somebody you trust. I referenced... In the earlier service, there's a group here called the Men's Conquer Series. It's a men's purity group that goes through a bunch of really solid scriptural resources on how uh, for men to overcome any type of sexual addiction. Groups like that are fantastic. There's going to be one starting up here for guys in January, January 2nd. It's going to be Monday nights. More information will come out about that. Talk to a group of trusted friends. Talk to one or two. Talk to just one. If you, just, if you have one close friend, come before them. And say, hey, listen, this may, you know, I'm not used to doing this, but I just got to be honest with you. I'm struggling with something, and I'd like, to, I'd like to get some help with it. And confess to them. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Align your own thinking about yourself with God's thinking about you. Because who's right? If you and God disagree, who do you really think is right? If you and God disagree, are you really going to have the audacity to say, no, I want that label back? Or are you going to say, you know what, God? Thank you. Thank you for cleaning me. And let's confess to one another. And I think those are really good steps for us to begin actually walking in the freedom that we now have in Christ. So the band can come back up and we're going to get into communion. So as they're coming up, I'll close this out. So where do we go next? We're going to be in chapter 8. I'm not sure exactly who's teaching. I think it was supposed to be Joe, but I'm, I believe it's Aaron who's going to follow this up in chapter 8. And in the very first verse of chapter 8, Paul is going to say something really encouraging. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. That was true for the Jewish readers who would come to understand Christ as their Savior. It was true for those who were already believers who were reading Paul's letter. And it's true for us today. As I said earlier that this wasn't specifically written to us, that doesn't mean that the truth within it doesn't apply to us. It absolutely does. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's going to finish out this teaching next week. So to sum up where we were in this, I broke it into kind of three sections. In the first section we saw Paul use an analogy of marriage to describe our freedom from the law of sin. We died to sin. We died to sin and we are therefore freed to be bound to another in covenant. Secondly, we talked about how the law revealed our sin. Paul did a little bit more to explain to his Jewish readers that the law revealed our sin. The law was good and sin was evil. And sin, through the law, brought us to death. And then he speaks from the perspective of someone who would have understood this very intimately. That they are a slave of sin. I can't get rid of my sin. I can't do it. But that was the people who were untransformed. Now we are transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The slave of sin is made completely free. Hallelujah. So that's where we've been. That's where we've been in Romans 7. And as we're finishing uh, passing the communion out, I'm going to... I'm going to pray. Somebody just let me know when we're all, when everybody's got one. there was only one point for us to take away from what Paul has taught in the last chapter and this chapter, I would say it's focus on Christ. Let's get our eyes off of ourselves and focus on Christ and how excellent he was at redeeming us. And as we, as we take communion together, as we partake of the bread that is the body of Christ that was broken for our sake, let's remember what Christ did and stop remembering what we did because God forgot. He said he forgot. He removed it as far from you as the east is from the west. So let's thank God for forgetting. And let's walk forward in freedom. And if there's something specific we need to walk out of, tell somebody about it. God knew there would be a struggle. If God didn't know there would be a struggle, he wouldn't have written half the Bible. He knew that it was difficult enough that we needed a lot of instruction. So it's there for us. So let's start. Let's start by thanking Jesus for his amazing transforming power. Tell him he did a good job. Thank you, Jesus, for doing a good job. All right, everyone's got one. So let's, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll eat together. Father, thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made. Jesus, thank you for being broken for us. And it's hard for us to totally picture, at least I know it is for me, to totally picture the sacrifice that you made. But in this moment, together, 
we're going to partake of your broken body. You sacrificed yourself. I sinned. I was guilty according to the law, and I deserved death. But Jesus, you died for me. Your body was broken for me, and you did it willingly because you love me. Thank you so much. Let's eat together. passage where it talks about communion, the last supper. It says, in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. We talked a lot about covenant last week. This new covenant, just like the rest of them, was marked in blood, but it was marked in pure blood. It was marked in blood that could clean every single person who would ever accept the gift of Jesus Christ. So thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Thank you that you washed us. Thank you that you did a very good job washing us. It's incredible the transformation that you've brought about in our lives so that we can glorify you. None of this is about lifting us up. This is all about acknowledging the incredible work that you did for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for restoring us to a position where we can actually glorify you. It doesn't glorify you for us to be be unrepentant sinners. It does glorify you for us to look like you because that's how you made us. So thank you, Jesus, for your blood that cleansed us. We remember you now. Let's drink this together. So throughout your week, thank Jesus for the work that he did in you. It was a very good work. It really was. The worship team's going to play one more song as we go. And then as you go, go out that way and stop by the American Heritage Girls' desk. Make a donation, buy something. Be blessed.
Look at him. This is our Savior. Look 